I've been uh, praying a prayer recently, and here's the prayer. Lord, show me what to do to restore my love for you. Show me what to do to restore my love for you. Now, uh, when the group of us who teach here stand each week to teach, we want to make sure that the truths run through our hearts first before we ever share them with you. And sometimes people say, uh, oh, man, you've been reading my mail. It's like you've been listening in on conversations that I've been having recently. Uh, it feels like you're only talking just to me. And I usually say, well, you know what? I basically was talking to me today <laughs> because I try to process this stuff in my own life first. God uses scripture in our own lives. And that was especially true for me this week. Uh, there was a message delivered on this passage 150 years ago by a pastor named C.H. Spurgeon in London. And here's what he had to say. Now, preacher, preach honestly and preach at thyself. Has there not been sometimes this temptation to do a great deal for Christ, but not to live a great deal with Christ? One of my besetting sins, I feel, is this. If there's anything to be done actively for Christ, I instinctively prefer the active exercise to the passive quiet of his presence. In other words, he's saying, I enjoy serving Jesus more than I enjoy loving Jesus. I think that's true for me. And maybe that's true for some others of us in the room too. And what that means is we need our love for Jesus to be recalibrated. And so here's the prayer to pray. Lord, show me what to do to restore my love for you. Uh, so we're in this new series, as Josh said, Recalibrate, and uh, I'd like for you to open your Bibles today to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll start with verse 1. Welcome to people that are watching online today. You can follow along with us in Revelation 2 verse 1. We just flipped our calendar to a new year, and that means that we get a, a restart, we get a reboot. It is time for us to recalibrate our lives and so Pastor Chad has asked us to launch this year with uh, the seven letters that Jesus dictated to the seven churches in ancient Asia, uh, what now is modern-day Turkey. And uh, Chad asked this question, if Jesus were to dictate a letter to you, what would he affirm and what would he ask you to change? In other words, what would he ask us to recalibrate? So we're going to look at this first letter today. Now, Jesus had died, he had risen, he had ascended into heaven, and somehow he is able to dictate this letter to one of his first followers, a guy named John. Uh, John had been exiled to an island called Patmos because the Roman rulers in those days wanted to shut down the faith. So a lot of followers of Jesus were persecuted, and one of the ways that John was persecuted, he was an older man now, is he had been exiled to this island. And John probably thought, hey, my service to Jesus is over. Here I am. I'm an old man. I'm on an island all alone by myself. But Jesus wanted John as an exile on that island with no distractions because he's got a message that he wants to deliver through John to the seven churches. And so let's start with verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Stop there. <laughs> What does it mean that Jesus is dictating this letter to an angel? Well, the word angel could be translated messenger. In other words, to the messenger of the church in Ephesus. 
Now, most, most Bible teachers believe that this is a reference to the lead pastor of the church. Now, I haven't heard anybody call Pastor Chad an angel lately, right? But that's what the text says. So I know I texted him this morning. I said, hey, how's the ch- how are you doing? And he says, I'm recovering slowly. I got the staples out. He says, please tell everybody I can't wait till I get back with them again. And so I know they're watching at 11. He said, I'll be watching at 11. So I'm guessing Rika's watching too. Rika, Cruz, Izzy, Faith, Chad is an angel. Just remember that. <laughs> and Chad, you better be acting like that during your recovery. Uh, for some of you who don't know, he just has some surgery on his neck, some spinal surgery, very serious surgery, but he's recovering well. And he'll be back with us in a few weeks. So the letter here goes to the angel <laughs> because he's wanting to speak to the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus is a pagan uh, city in uh, the land we now call Turkey. His church was started by the missionary Paul, and then it was letter, later led by John, who's receiving this letter, and later led by Timothy. So they had great leadership. And we got to remember, this letter is written to a church. It's not written to individuals. In fact, you've got plural pronouns that are used throughout the letter. The yous that you see here quite often are plural yous. So the idea here is... Um, I'm writing to a whole church, but think about it. A church is made up of individuals. So the way that Jesus looks at Cuyahoga Valley Church is by looking at the individuals who collectively make up the church. So how you act toward Jesus and how I act toward Jesus and how she acts toward Jesus and how he acts toward Jesus affects all of us. It makes up the collective of how we act toward Jesus. So my question is, how is your individual walk with Christ contributing to how Jesus looks at our church? So back to the text. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So the words of him. Who's that? Who's the him? Well, that's Jesus, of course. And what are the seven stars and seven lampstands? Well, um, Earlier in chapter 1, we learn about that. It says that the seven stars are the angels or the messengers or the pastors of the seven churches. And then the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the idea here is that the pastors are supposed to shine. They're not supposed to be rock stars of the church. They're supposed to be the brightest lights in the church for Christ. And the seven lampstands, the churches, are to be lights for a dark world, a dark culture where where they exist. So Jesus is holding these leaders in his hand and he's walking around his churches. It's kind of like a coach would be walking around his team and the coach is going, hey, who's playing well and who needs a conversation? Jesus knows what's going on with us, right? He knows what's going on in my life and your life. He knows what's going on in this church. He sees some things that are right. He sees some things that are wrong. And and by the way, we got to keep in mind who's speaking The words of him, Jesus. Who's this? He's not somebody to be trifled with, right? He's not somebody to be ignored. He's not like a little league coach. He's not like a grumpy uh, landlord. He's not like a boss in the marketplace. This is the one who died, who rose again, who ascended to heaven, and who is coming back. And the Bible says he will judge us. This is the one we will stand before and we will give an account of our lives. And in fact, in the previous chapter, John says that he saw Jesus. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet like he was dead. 
because he saw him as hair white as wool, which speaks to the authority and the agelessness and the wisdom of Christ. It says that his eyes were like a flames of fire, piercing and penetrating. He sees everything and out of his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword and it's like he cuts away anything that uh, it displeases him and it says that he had this robe on which speaks of his dignity and his royalty and and it says that his voice was like a voice of many waters he has resounding authority and it says that his feet were like feet of bronze he could trample down his enemies this is the one who's speaking to the church in Ephesus and this is the one who's speaking to us today and we dare not minimize him we dare not tune him out and we dare not excuse our behavior so here's the question would Jesus give them a thumbs up thumbs down we give us a thumbs up, a thumbs down. See, Jesus does give them a thumbs up because the church at Ephesus was a hardworking church. And these are people who put their blood, sweat, and tears into their work for the Lord. They, they gave to God what cost them. Look at verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil works. It's like being on mission. It's helping the poor. It's helping people in need. It's leading a ministry. It's teaching a class. It's opening up your home to a life group. It's leading a life group. It's like serving other people. But there's more than just, to there's more than just works. There's toil. He says, I know your toil. And some versions use the word labor here and involves uh, sweat equity. It's like energy. It's like I'm working for you even if it hurts, even if it costs me pain. He gives them a thumbs up. There's more. Again, in verse 2, I know not only your works and toil, but your patient endurance. Look at verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So these believers are on a constant, ongoing service for Christ. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, these people just keep it up. They're helping the poor. They're tending the sick. They're sharing the good news. They're taking care of people with mental illnesses. They, they teach the people how to live. It's not sporadic service. They go through in, uh, persecutions and difficulties and hardships and discouragements, and they don't waver. They're always faithful. So he gives them a thumbs up for that. There is more. The teachings of Scripture always come under attack. The world around us always wants us to water down the truth. That was true back then. Look at verse 2 again. He says, I know how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Not everybody you listen to on TV and on the radio is a good guy. Verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which also I hate. That's strong language. Who are these guys, Nicolaitans? We don't really know much about these people. Uh, they're actually only mentioned two times in the Bible, right here and then later in this chapter, in verse 16. They claim to be followers of Jesus, but they live, live lifestyles contrary to the Scripture. And he says to the Ephesians, you stood up to these guys. Thumbs up for your works. Thumbs up for your toil. Thumbs up for your endurance. Thumbs up for your endurance for the defense of the faith. Now, could Jesus say about you, I know your works? Because frankly, some of us in this room, we haven't done any. Some of us profess, well, I'm a follower of Christ, but there are no works. There's no proof that you are a follower of Christ. 
I wish that Jesus could write to you, I know your works. Could he write to you, I know your toil? Because many followers of Christ have works, but they have no toil. They have no labor. You might say, well, I know your sloth. I know your procrastination. I know your laziness. I know you shirk the hardest work for me. May we be known for our work and our toil for Christ. And some even work and toil, but they don't have endurance. They only last a little while. They run out of gas. That's not true for this church in Ephesus. How about you? Or is it up and down with you? Hot and cold, on and off. Some work, some toil, some have endurance, but they compromise. See, some churches, some people bow down at the 21st century idol called tolerance. Hey, whatever works for you is okay with me. Whatever lifestyle you choose is fine with me. And these are people that call good evil and evil good. Question, whenever issues like homosexuality and living together before you're married, and abortion come up in your neighborhood or at work, do you take a stand for truth of Scripture? Do you defend the faith? And I'm not suggesting that we go around looking for spiritual fights. I mean, please don't start some kind of a weird, disgusting Facebook thread. Don't do that. Because we're supposed to be kind, we're supposed to be winsome, we're supposed to be gentle, but that doesn't mean that we still can't be firm. Now, don't be, be, beat people up with your Bible, but when issues come up at break time or at work, have you ever said a good word for Christ in defense of what he teaches? Would he give us a thumbs up? Now, Jesus gives us, gets to the heart of the matter, and as he walks through this church in Ephesus, he sees something wrong. So he not only gives a thumbs up, but he also gives a thumbs down. And I wonder if he would give us a thumbs down today. What's he give a thumbs down for? It's lost love. It's possible to be so busy serving Christ that you neglect loving Christ. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You lost your love. Do you love Jesus as much today? as you once did? Has your love for Jesus grown old? Has your love for Jesus grown cold? That's why I say this is a prayer we need to pray. Lord, show me what to do to restore my love for you. Do you look forward to spending time reading your Bible to hear from Jesus like you once did? Do you look forward to spending time in prayer, talking to Jesus like you once did? Do you look for ways to serve Jesus like you once did? Are you as quick to obey as you once were? Do you run as far and as fast away from sin as you once did? Do you look forward to hearing the Bible taught like you once did? In that sermon from 150 years ago, Spurgeon wrote this, There was a time whenever you heard the word, it was all precious to you. Now you grumble at the minister. The minister has many faults. But the question is whether there has not been a greater change in you than there has been in him. The fault lies in your own ears. When we are in our first love, it is amazing what little it takes to make a good preacher to us. <laughs> I've heard sermons from which I ought to have profited, but I've been thinking on the man's style or some little mistakes in grammar. And what's the reason for this? 
I've lost my first love. Now, if a great soul like C.H. Spurgeon can say that about himself, how much more can I say it about me? Here's what happens to our love. The work of the Lord crowds out the Lord of the work. Your work begins to crowd out your worship. Your duty begins to crowd out your devotion. Sometimes the Christian who's the most busy is actually the most barren. Have you lost your first love? See, when you lose your love for Jesus, you ultimately will lose everything. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, when I have learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall not be moving towards that state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. The, the, the best thing that a mom can do for her kids is to love Jesus first. The best thing that a husband could do for his marriage is to love Jesus most. Because everything else starts to fall into place. Jesus deserved your love a long time ago, right? Why did you stop loving him? I mean, is he less generous than he used to be? Is he less caring? Is he less kind? Is he less tender? Is he less wise? Is he less powerful? Have you kind of outgrown him? Is there anybody else that's going to punch your ticket to heaven? When we first fell in love with Jesus, we had passion. Everything we saw in the Bible was sweet. We loved his commands. We wanted to be in Bible classes. We wanted to be in worship services. When the doors are open, we're there. And our family and friends said, man, you're whacked out. You're nuts. You're going overboard. You're crazy. What's wrong with you? You're a fool for Christ. We didn't care. We took that as a compliment because we'd do anything for Jesus. And now sports and media and music and the job, they all keep us preoccupied. It's the loss of your first love for Christ that makes you seek comfort more than Christ. It's the loss of your love for Christ that makes you seek happiness more than you seek holiness. And so here in verse 5, he tells us three things that we need to do. If we're going to restore our love for Jesus, the first thing we got to do is we've got to recall. We've got to recall. And so I'm trying to draw, best I can, a hand with a finger up with a little ribbon tied around it, right? So we can recall. Look at what it says in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The idea is for us to think back, to think about the love that we had for the Savior when we first came to know that he had forgiven us for our sins. You saw him bleeding on the cross, dying in your place, paying the penalty that you should have paid. And he whispered in your heart, I'm your salvation. I have taken your sins and I've paid for them with my blood. You are totally forgiven. The slate's wiped clean. You can live in heaven forever with me when you die. You loved him then. Those days were so happy you could not forget them. And he says, return to that time when you first saw the light and the burdens of your heart rolled away. 
I remember when I fell in love with Jesus. I was about 21. I was on a mission trip. When we came back from the States, I was constantly reading my Bible. The book of Philippians, I remember. And I was listening to sermons on, we had these little plastic things called cassette tapes back in the day. And I'd pop those babies in. I'd listen to those sermons over and over again. Four sermons. In Philippians 1, 2, 3, and 4. And, and those, Marianne and I were dating at the time, and, and man, we fired letters back and forth to each other because this is before texting and FaceTime and all that. And man, my letters are filled with stuff from my devotional life. It just spilled over. I couldn't help but talk about Jesus. Remember from whence you have fallen. Pastor Chad says, we got to be careful about this word fallen. We can misuse the word and make our sin like it was an accident. Oops, I fell. I didn't see that coming. Seriously, there was a series of significant or subtle intentional acts that led us to the place of failure. And it's the same with loving Christ. We can't just say, oops, I guess I fell out of love with Jesus. It's a series of very significant and subtle intentional decisions. I picked up the remote rather than my Bible. I scrolled social media for 60 minutes rather than praying for 10. Remember. It's a present tense verb. And it's describing ongoing action. And so in the original language, this present tense verb means that we could translate it this way. Keep on remembering. Remembering when there was nothing between you and the Lord. He was your life, your joy, your hope, your love. Sermons weren't boring then. You weren't going, when's that guy going to shut up? Prayer meetings weren't painful then. Scripture reading wasn't a chore then. There was a time when you embraced the troubles and the trials of life because you knew they came through the filter of a friend and his name was Jesus. And he was going to help you deal with it. You enjoyed the sweetness of walking with him and talking to him about everything that came your way. So I want you to think back. Was it better then or now for you? Did you have more peace, more strength, more hope, more joy then or now? Did you sleep better then or now? Did you awake more cheerfully then or now? Did you deal with tough times better then or now? To restore my love for Jesus, I've got to recall. And then to restore my love for Jesus, I've got to... This is a little guy who is praying. I've got to repent. And this is also in verse 5. Look at it. The, Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent. Uh, the, the Greek word here for repent is metanoia. It means a change of mind that produces a change of life. And here it's not a present tense thing. It's not something to keep remembering like remember. This is Repent now. It's an aorist tense verb, which means right now. Do it. Get alone with Jesus. Get on your knees or on your face. And you say, I've had all the wrong priorities, Lord. You're the best thing that ever happened to me, and I've been failing to love you. I've been obeying you. I haven't been in your word. I have been spending time with you. I don't talk to you throughout the day like I used to. I've been neglecting you. I know I've been wrong. And I know it's been hurting your heart. Please forgive me. Please help me. I'm changing. I want to be back in love with you. Repent. Repent. Remember. Repent. And the last one is, you know, when you're looking at a YouTube video... And you can, on an iPad, hit it. 
The idea is to replay. Replay some things. Look again in verse 5. It says, do the work you did at first. This word do is also an aorist tense verb, which means do it now. Do what you did before. Don't wait till February. Get it going now. Fall in love again. Do it now. What did you used to do? For some of you, it was like a certain book that you read and it moved you. You know, for me, it was that series of cassette tapes. For some of you, it was like music. It connected you with Jesus. You used to turn off the TV at night so you could get up early in the morning and read your Bible and pray. You would put the phone with the alarm across the room so that it went off. You had to get out of bed on a cold morning in January to go turn it off, and then you splashed a little water in your face. You got a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, and you sat down in a favorite place to read your Bible so you could journal and you could pray. And you'd forget about the time because you're kind of lost in your love with Jesus. He says here, replay. Do what you did at first. What is the sin that you used to avoid, but you're not avoiding it now? What's the promise that you used to claim, but you're claiming it no more? What's the example of someone that you used to follow, but you're not following that example anymore? What's the command from Scripture? You used to obey it, but you're not obeying it now. What's that service that you used to perform, but you're not? What's that friendship you used to have that's like, dude, I don't want to meet with that guy anymore? Do the deed you did at first. Do what you did before. Do whatever it takes to fall in love again. And the idea is like, do it now. So I want you to brainstorm with me this morning. Wants to make a list of things we need to replay. I want you to be thinking about things you used to do. Maybe you're not doing them so much now. So let's see if we can build a better list in the first two services, all right? Give me some. All right? Keep a prayer journal. Singing to Jesus. And I think that was Dale. I've heard Dale sing. It's not so good. But to Jesus, it's awesome. <laughs> Jesus thinks it's awesome, doesn't he? Yes. Sorry, Dale. Be thankful to God. Yeah, there's a verse that says, thank God in everything, for this is the will of God for you who are in Christ Jesus. First Thessalonians 5. What else? Get back to the men's group. Can I get an amen on that, Dale? <laughs> get back to the men's group. All right. Who else? All right, we got two at one time. I heard praise for blessings. And I heard over here, keep a Bible with you. Wow. Memorize scripture. See, this is really good because when the preacher says this stuff, you tune it out. But if you guys are preaching to yourselves, that's like, really, that's good. What else? I got room for about five more. All right. Come back to church and uh, share your testimony. 
Do what? Okay, testimony. Listen to sermons. Man, I remember in those early days, I would listen on the radio to these guys, and I can't believe it's so tempting for me now to just listen to stupid Cleveland Brown sports talk radio. Why, why would you do that? Daily devotions. All right, we got room for one more. Who's going to be the last one? <laughs> I said one person, not 15. Be joyful in all things. I heard that. All right. Rejoice always. That's that same passage where it says, um, pray without ceasing and uh, count it all joy, or be thankful in all things. Rejoice always. Okay. I want you to look at that list. It's on the screen. It's on this little post-it. I want you to pick something that you need to do that you haven't been doing. Maybe you once did. Because, because the prayer is, Lord, show me what to do to restore my love for you. What's the one thing? And can you jot it down? Can you make a commitment that for the next 30 days, this is what I'm going to do? We used to actually take notes on messages in the margins of Bibles. Now we got these apps. <laughs> fire up our apps, and what? we're not taking notes like we used to. And we kind of like sit with our arms crossed. I dare the worship leader to move me. I dare that pastor to say anything that's going to affect the way I live. Because, dude, shut up already. I got brunch to go to, and I'm watching the NFL playoffs. And if that's the attitude, could it be that you've lost your first love? Pastor Chad says this, one of the greatest culprits who eroding our love with Jesus is media, especially social media. If we spent a fraction of time with Jesus that we do watch TV, movies, and on social media, we would be way more in love with Jesus. What if we start our year answering a call to fast from the media that invades and intrudes on our relationship with Christ? What about a week of replacing social media with time in the Word and prayer? What about weekly fasting days? What about finding an accountability friend to help me stay on target? How might I recalibrate how I spend my time to cultivate more love for Jesus? I think we have a skewed understanding of what loving Jesus really looks like. I mean, we kind of think, well, if I read my Bible and go to church and, and pray and stay away from certain kinds of sins and kind of do it half-heartedly, that that's, that's, that's good enough. Or, or we think, well, if I'm on the right side of the political equation, <laughs> whichever side you think it's right, then that's, that's good enough. But here's what Jesus says about loving him. John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's pretty simple. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will do the deeds. You did it first. When I first started dating my wife, Marianne, she was at the University of Alabama, and I was at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, again, before cell phones, <laughs> before texting, we would write letters to each other, but I'm going to tell you, we could not wait to be together. I thought about her constantly. I wonder what she's doing right now. 
I thought about her constantly. Um, there was a lot of infatuation back then, a lot of immaturity back then. We've been married now for 41 years and counting. And I sometimes do have those same feelings. I cannot believe that she would marry the likes of me. What a fortunate man that I am. But the way I show my love for her is not through fleeting, sentimental, immature emotions. The way I show my love for her is through an abiding, settled commitment to prove my devotion to her. It's different now than it used to be. Some of the feelings are still there for sure, but a more settled commitment to devotion, I think it's more important. In my house, one of the greatest acts of love for me to marry Ann is for me to do the dishes. <laughs> and I did the dishes a couple, of after, uh, a couple of days ago in the afternoon, and then I went back to the kitchen in the evening, and I looked at the sink, and it was like full. And I said, hey, didn't I just clean up this kitchen this afternoon? I can't believe it's messy again. What are you guys doing around here? And as soon as I said, I thought, dude, I've heard Marianne say that like a thousand times. <laughs> I'm turning into Marianne. <laughs> I express my love for my wife by doing the dishes and vacuuming and doing laundry and putting the toilet seat down. Do I want to do these chores? Almost never. But if I love my wife, I do the dishes. We have to be people who do the chores of the Christian life if we're going to show Jesus that we love him. If we love him, we'll keep his commandments. And you're not saved by doing this stuff. You don't get your ticket punched to go to heaven because you do these things. As Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, we're saved by grace through faith, right? But verse 10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works. Now there's a way to do these good works <laughs> that works. And there's a way to do good works that doesn't work. So you got to do it with a good heart. I mean, my son asks, hey, Dad, can I use the car? I might say, yeah, you can use it as long as you wash it. And what if my son cops an attitude? What if he gripes? What if he says, I can't believe my dad's making me wash the car. So I'll go wash it, but I'm not happy about it. Well, that's not love. <laughs> I mean, it's my car, it's my guest. He needs to be thinking, wow, Dad, thank you. I'll wash the car before and after I use it. Thank you so much. Big difference, right? What if we keep the commandments of Christ and we cop an attitude? We need to do it with a good heart. Because we don't want Jesus to say about us, hey, you honor me with your lips. You honor me with your deeds. But your heart is far from me. See, it's time. It's way past time for us to do the deeds we did at first. So again, our prayer is restore Show me what to do to restore my love for you. Now, there's a threat at the end of verse 5. He says, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And here he's describing a loss of influence, a loss of effectiveness. Now, where did that go? Well, when passion for Christ goes, power from Christ. Christ goes. You know what gives us spiritual power? It's love. It's love for Christ. 
Because it's real love that gives you influence for Christ. So you could teach a lesson, share a scripture, write a note, do some good deeds, do all of this stuff. But without love, there will be little impact. But if you teach a lesson or share the same scripture or write the same note with a love for the Lord energizing it, God will see to it there's power there. Look at how the letter ends. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now this is a reference to the best news ever. We're talking about eternal life here. We're talking about living, serving, working, growing, learning in heaven forever without the encumbrance of sin. It's unbelievable. So who is the one who gets the eternal life? Well, think about it. It's the one who overcomes the tendency to fall out of love with Jesus. It's the one who pursues staying in love with Jesus. I mean, if you have time for love, you get the tree of life. If you have a passion for God, you get the paradise of God. If you fall out of love, there's no time for love. There's no tree of life. If there's no passion for God, there's no paradise of God. These truths ought to make us have great anticipation, but they also ought to be sobering, stunning. Could it be that I only thought I had love for Christ, but I never really had it? For if I really had love for Christ, would I be living as I'm now living? I mean, if I go on backsliding... For another year or another six months, who knows where I may backslide to. Maybe into some shameful sin. Maybe I lose my family. Maybe I could backslide totally. I mean, if I'm a true follower of Christ, I can never lose my salvation. But what if I only thought I was a child of God? What if I just made a profession, but truth be told, I never take delight in the things of God? What if I'm a good person, but I'm not a godly person? Because there's some of us here, we profess Christ, we don't possess Christ. So as a prayer maybe expresses your heart today, I've had all the wrong priorities, Lord. You are the best thing that ever happened to me, and I've been failing to love you. I haven't been obeying you. I haven't been in your word. I haven't been spending time with you. I don't talk to you throughout the day like I used to. I've been neglecting you. It's wrong. And your heart is hurt. So please forgive me. Please help me. I'm changing. I want to be back in love with you. Maybe that's your prayer today. If you pray that prayer, check your, on your uh, attendance card. Put it in the offering basket because we'd love to help you grow in your faith. We're going to spend a few minutes connecting our hearts to his heart during the next few songs. And here's the prayer that I hope you'll pray. Lord, show me what to do to restore my love for you. I hope you can remember that. Like I've said it like six or seven times in the message. <laughs> it even rhymes, people. <laughs> Lord, show me what to do to restore my love for you. Let's say it together. Lord, show me what to do to restore my love for you. Father, I pray that uh, this would not just be an empty phrase or an empty prayer, but we would mean it from the very depths of our hearts. 
And God, you would make us a church more in love with you than ever before. That our love would be shown up in our obedience. Constant, faithful devotion to you. Make it happen, Lord. Give us all a new habit to form over the next 30 days that would make all the difference for the rest of this year. For I prayed in Christ's name. Amen.